This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we open God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this ministry that DM2 has started and the impact it will have on the students that are focusing, taking this time out of their lives to focus on an intensive time of training and study in the Word. And we know that your Word does not go forth void. And Father, we pray for the teachers and pray for the students because we know that any kind of uh, strong spiritual focus like this is always open to attack by Satan. And we pray that they, that they will be strong and firm in the faith. Thank you for our time in your word now, and we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we study. In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 68. What we're looking at this morning is the ascent of Christ to the right hand of the Father, which sort of will, it completes our study of the ascension and sets up the significance of the session. So we'll be looking a little more at Psalm 68 at the beginning, and then we will transition over into the beginning of Psalm 110. Now, what I've been emphasizing is that in this study, it is you can have a simple study, which is what most people get, that Christ ascended to the throne and he's seated at the right hand, and that's about as far as it goes. Some will say uh, during his session there are these three or four ministries that Christ is doing, but it just skims the surface of this significant event. We've taken about four lessons or five lessons so far to go through this, and I think that that has impressed you with the fact that there's a lot more to this than just that sort of summary. And when you look at the passages, the other related passages in the New Testament related to the ascension and session, it really pulls from five different messianic psalms. Now, I've changed this statement here to fit more of the order in which we're going to go through these verses, which puts them in more of a chronological order with reference to all of these events that happen beginning with the ascension. You have Psalm 68:18, which is the verse that Paul is quoting in our passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. And then that is what ends the ascension where Christ comes to the Father, and in Psalm 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies the footstool. Now, what is that all about? And it focuses on the fact that Christ's position now is not an active position in one sense. He is seated, waiting. And we have to understand what he is waiting for, and that will take us to Psalm 2 in connection with Daniel 7 and also Psalm 8. And we'll wrap those up, not in-depth studies of each psalm, but just the pertinent passages And then, of course, we'll be tying things together in terms of Psalm 89, which is a reiteration of the Davidic covenant with Psalm 132, verses 11 to 14. So that's a lot of material, and we have to pull that together. And uh, the next thing we're going to do, or in the process of this, we'll be looking at these important terms that are used, the term Son of Man, which emphasizes the humanity of the Messiah the Son of God, which emphasizes that the Messiah is going to be uh, fully God. He is not derivative deity. He is eternal deity. And then he is the Son of David, which emphasizes his descent from from King David of Israel in fulfillment of God's covenant, which he made with, with David. And then his title of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that he is the one who is the sovereign ruler over all of the nations on the earth. Then third, we're going to briefly be touching on the Davidic covenant as the foundation for understanding all of this. And then last, understanding this priesthood, this Melchizedekian priesthood, which comes from Psalm 110, verse 4, and how that is fulfilled in Christ and why that's important for us in terms of our being believer priests in this church age. It's not based on a the priesthood of Levi related to Aaron, but this distinctive Gentile priest king uh, priesthood. So we looked at Psalm, I mean, excuse me, look at Acts 1-9 as Jesus is taken up and received out of their sight. A passive word he's received And this indicates his acceptance by God by the clouds. And often in Scripture, as we'll see in some of the passages we're looking at, the term clouds or a cloud is is a picture of God. God is above the clouds or comes in the clouds, and Christ is received into the clouds, which indicates his acceptance by God. Hebrews 4.14, that this great high priest we have, now that term high priest is going to connect that idea of the Melchizedekian priesthood with these other terms, uh, that he has passed through the heavens. That is, he has taken off in his uh, resurrection body as the God-man, 100% deity, 100% humanity, fully God, truly man, And he ascends through the heavens, past the universe, to the third heaven, which is the uh, throne room of God. He goes to the throne room of God, and there he is welcomed, and he is told to sit at God's right hand. And this introduces the session. So that 1 Peter 3.22 tells us that part of what happens here is it elevates a man, remember he's the God-man, but as the Son of God, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, he has always been in authority over the angels. 
but as the God-man in his humanity now, seated at the right hand of the Father. There is a human resurrection body seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is in authority over all of the angels. And Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we are seated together in him. Now, the passage we're looking at says, therefore, he says, and this is a reference to God, uh, or to Scripture speaking, so it is God who is speaking through Scripture, says, when he ascended on high, and the he there in the context of Psalm 68, 18, is uh, talking about Yahweh. When he, um, or, or excuse me, uh, this is a, being applied by, this is being applied by Paul to Christ. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts to men. Now, that's not a direct quote from Psalm 68, 18. Some things are changed. Paul does that because he is sees that Psalm 68, 18 is a type or a picture, a pattern that relates to Christ. So one of the things I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, because I've gone through this with most of you, but one of the major issues in interpreting Scripture is when you have these kinds of quotations from the Old Testament, which are not taken precisely from the Old Testament. And so people have questions, there's some confusion about some of these things, and basically the best way to understand them is in uh, what I've taught many times, that there are four different ways that this occurs, and that these all four ways are introduced in in Matthew chapter two, when you have these phrases, and it 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 was fulfilled, and most of us think of fulfilled prophecy only in the first sense, and the first sense is when you have a literal prophecy in the Old Testament, such as Matthew five two, that uh, one will come in the futures whose going forth has been for for everlasting, indicating that this one who's going to be born has is really eternal and that he is going to be born in Bethlehem. That's a prophecy, and it is literally fulfilled in that Jesus, the Messiah, is born in Bethlehem. Now, the second use, I'm not going to go through all four of them. The second use is where you have an event in the Old Testament that is a historical event. It's not a prophecy. It's, it's an event that happened in the past, but it is used as a pattern or a type of something in relationship to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we have here. You have this Old Testament situation from Psalm 68 where there is this victory procession taking the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God dwelt in the Old Testament, in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and then the temple. And that again and again in the Scripture it talks about God dwelt uh, between the cherubs, the cherubs on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we know from what Scripture says, remember Solomon's prayer to God that no earthly building can contain him, uh, but that he has chosen to in some way focal, focus his presence in the uh, tabernacle and, and the temple. And so it's this victory ascent to, uh, to the temple mount 
that is being referenced in Psalm 68. And in that victory ascent, David is seeing, because I believe that David understands that what he is saying is prophetic in some way of the Messiah is related to him. And Paul uses that to take it and then to show that this is a picture. He's going to change a couple of things because in Psalm 68, it says that uh, Yahweh ascended and men gave gifts to him. But Paul is going to shift that to use that as a pattern for what has happened in the ascension and that Christ ascends on high. And we have this difficult phrase for us to grab He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And then he's going to explain that, that when it says he ascended, we have to assume that if he ascended, that he had to have descended because he's God, so that that means that he had descended to the lower parts that is the earth, okay? It's not talking about inside the earth. So I pointed out last time, this is not talking about that episode uh, where Christ announces his victory over sin to the uh, fallen angels in Tartarus. This is something totally different. He's descending to the earth, and then he will ascend far above the heavens that he may fill all things. So we went to Psalm sixty-eight, twelve, and I noted along the way that this is a very difficult psalm and in many ways to translate and to understand. But I'm just, I went through details last week. I just want to hit the highlights and it traces in the beginning of this, from starting at really about verse 9 and on, this, this victorious procession historically from Mount Sinai where God calls out the, and forms the nation. He has called out the people through the Abrahamic covenant, and he has created a new people, but it is at Mount Sinai that he forms a new nation, and he gives them a law. And and they part of that law has to do with the construction of the tabernacle where they're going to worship him. And then from Sinai, they will march to the southern border of the land God had promised. Of course, there they disobey God and they fail, so they're going to have to uh, be disciplined, and that generation will not be allowed to enter into the land. And then eventually they will enter the land under under Joshua. And so these verses reference what goes on during that period as they go from Sinai up to the promised land. Uh, Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home divides the spoil. So this is referring to that episode we've been studying on Tuesday night in Judges, where it is Jael, who is a Kenite, a distant cousin to the Israelites, and she is the one who kills um, kills Sisera, who's the general of the Canaanite army, thus uh, causing a great defeat among the, the Canaanite army of Yavin. And then uh, the next verse talks about peace during this, this particular time. And then in uh, 68.14, when the Almighty, this term that is first used in Genesis, it's also used in Job a lot. I believe Job was actually written before Genesis, but that's another issue. Uh, but chronologi- or, or canonically, the first use is there in uh, 68.14, when the Almighty, Shaddai, scattered kings in it, 
It's all talking about the defeat of these Canaanite kings. Now, what was the command that God gave the Israelites when they're going to invade the promised land? That you are to kill every man, woman, and child, and in some cases, all of the livestock. Now, the reason for that is not because God's a cruel God, because God had said to Abraham 400 years earlier that these Canaanites were just these horrible people who were just so perverted and destructive, and God was going to give them another 400 years to turn to him. And they just became more and more perverted. There were child sacrifices, and and that's not just a baby. That's all the way up to six, seven, eight years of age, and they would burn them alive in the arms of the idols of Chemosh and Molech. They were a perverted culture, homosexuality, all manners of sexual sins that you can think of and some you can't even imagine were the typical characteristics of the Canaanite culture, and God brought it to an end because they were so perverse, this would be like a spiritual cancer on the body of humanity, and so it needed to be surgically removed so that for the health of the body of humanity, as it were. And it's all related to this demonic worship. And so um, when you look at these passages like... um, Verse 15, where it's translated, uh, uh, in some translations it will say a mountain of God, which is completely wrong because it's contrasted to the Mount Zion in the next verse. And it literally says in the Hebrew, it's a mountain of Elohim. And Elohim is the Hebrew word, it's just a generic word for God, so that you have um you have Elohim referring to the God, but his proper name is Yahweh. But you also have Elohim, lowercase, related to the false gods, the idols. We read of that in uh, one of the verses in Psalm 100 as we read this morning. But here, if you translate it as a mountain of the Elohim, then you understand that this is one of these high mountains in the northern part of Israel in uh, what is called the Golan Heights today, and uh, the highest peak there is Mount Hermon, and it was in these high elevated places that they would build these pagan temples. And so there's a contrast between the mountain of the pagans where they worshipped and had human sacrifices uh, versus the Mount Zion, which is where God is. Now, remember in Deuteronomy 32:17, Moses is closing out his message to the Israelites just before they go into the conquest, and he's reminding them of the perversions of the Canaanites. And he says, they sacrificed to demons, not to God, uppercase, not to Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, to gods they did not know. And so this is lowercase Elohim. So the demons are referred to as Elohim in this passage, new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. And see, this was where he's referring to uh, the Israelites who had gone apostate and had been sucked into the pagan religions and the sacrifices to these pagan gods. So this is an extremely dangerous situation for Israel, and they are being warned not to follow in that pattern. 
Psalm 68, 16, personifying this mountain, says, why do you, you, these great grand peaks of Mount Hermon and the other great peaks in that area, why do you stare with envy, you mountains of many peaks? This is the mountain, this referring to Mount Zion, is the mountain which God desires to dwell in. Yes, the Lord will dwell in it forever. And then it talks about the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands, and relates that to Sinai. Why does it relate it to Sinai? Because in Deuteronomy 33.2, we're told that the Lord came from Sinai, dawned on them from Mount Seir. We see that same combination, and we saw it in our study of Judges 5 last week, the Song of Deborah. This is just recounting the historical conquest of the land. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. That's the area down in the south of the Dead Sea. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of his saints or his holy ones, literally. From his right hand came a fiery law uh, for them. And so this reminds us of these passages like Psalm 2.6, where God announces, I have set my king on my holy hill, Mount Zion. Mount Zion is a holy hill. It is set apart as God's dwelling place. And in Psalm 76, 2, in Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. So Zion is where God has placed his name. Now, this is a, another passage I referenced a minute ago in Judges 4, uh, 5, verse 4 and 5 that connects Seir and Sinai. And we see these constant references when God appears of a reference to thousands upon thousands of angels angels of the angelic forces around him and often they're connected with fire and you also see this in reference to those 10,000 upon 10,000 chariots that are surrounding God uh, that we just looked at in Psalm 68. Uh, God is referenced as one who rides upon a cherub uh, Isaiah 19.1, the Lord rides on a swift cloud, again, referencing a cloud like we had in Acts 1, uh, 1, 9. Uh, Habakkuk 3.8, 3, uh, you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation there uh, in the last line. So in Psalm 68.18, as you reach this this sort of crescendo of this this progression that has taken place, uh, the psalmist says, you ha- it's, and it's David, says, you have ascended on high, you have led captivity captive, you have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious, that the Lord God might dwell there. So it's talking to God, you have ascended on high to Mount Zion, ascending up Mount Zion, I'll show you a map in a minute, and led captivity captive. So this is talking about a procession, Psalm 68:24. They have seen your procession, your victory procession, to take your place on your holy hill, Mount Zion, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. So the psalm we pointed out last time starts off, let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. And so this is talking about this, this combat situation. God is going to defeat the enemies, his enemies, and give the land to to Israel. And so this is about where we ended last time. In Numbers 10.35, as they are leaving Sinai, 
Moses says, rise up, O Lord. That's that same language that we have. It pictures God rising up, preparing, and going into battle uh, for his people. Rise up, O Lord, let thine enemies be scattered, and let those who hate thee flee before thee. And when it came to rest, he said, return thou, O Lord, to the myriads of the thousands. Okay, so this map is showing where Edom, Seir, the Horites live down in this area just south of the Dead Sea. And it is through there that Israel will march. They'll come up. Actually, they'll go to Kadesh Barnea here, wander around uh, for about uh, 40 years. And then they will finally, after that disobedient generation um, dies off, then they will march forward. They will go up around and up into the land and conquer that. And the area up here is the area where we have Deborah's battle. That's Judges 5. But all of this is picturing this victorious progression until the Canaanites are mostly conquered under David, and David is able to prepare things to have uh, a central worship site as, as promised in, in Deuteronomy that will be on the what we can now call the Temple Mount, which is where the Dome of the Rock is located in Israel, and the rock there is considered to be the rock of foundation. And the Jews have always seen that. That was the rock on which the Ark of the Covenant rested. This was inside the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle first, and then the temple when Solomon built it. And that that is where God had placed his name. And so now it is occupied by a false god. We see the predictions, the patterns going through Joshua and the conquest as they crossed into the land. Uh, Joshua 3.15 describes the fact that when the priest's feet, feet were going down to touch the water, the waters moved back and their feet actually uh, went to, the, to dry ground and they were, uh, the, the waters of the Jordan stopped on their right uh, coming down from the north and they were able to cross. And so they crossed over, and all the people followed them crossing over the Jordan to go into the land. And then we see a picture in Second Samuel. Uh, this is when they are t- taking the ark. It's gone through various uh, travels, which I'm not taking us through. And it has finally been resting at the house of Obed-Edom uh, for uh, the last uh, several years, Obed-Edom, that second name Edom, Obed from Edom, he was an Edomite background, and yet God blesses him uh, because he is watching over the house of uh, uh, where, where he was watching over the ark that is stored in his house. And so this procession now on this day, David is going to move the ark from the house of Obed-Edom, where it's been for several years, a number of years, and he's going to move it up to the Temple Mount. And so there's this procession, and it's described. I mean, this is a huge celebration. Think of the biggest parade you've ever seen. This is on that level. It is enormous, and it's slow because the focus is on God. And so every six paces, which is like six or seven yards, uh, they are they're going to be a sacrifice of an ox and a fatling. Sacrifice. You take the animal, you slit the animal's 
throat and you put it on an altar. So they're building a temporary altar. This would take all day to make this progression and you're just moving about six or seven yards at a time as you go up up the hill and there are they're singing. This is something this is a victorious procession. It's like uh, the the parades and the ticker tape parades you see in Times Square at the end of World War II. It is an enormous celebration that God is going, finally going to this space where God has placed his name as a sign of his victory, giving the land um, land to Israel. And David is dancing there at the end. And why is David dancing? This is a big question people ask because he's dressed in a priestly ephod. Later on, kings in Israel will be punished by God uh, for Uzziah, acts like a priest, and God uh, punishes him by making him a leper. So what's going on here? Well, this victory celebration, when the ark is moving up, comes chronologically right after David has defeated and conquered uh, Jebus, or Salem, which is the capital, the city of the Jebusites, and uh, he's taken control. Now, the, he, David is has conquered Salem, conquered Jebus. Why is that significant? Who's the first king we know of, of, of Salem, which becomes Jerusalem? Who's the first king that we know of in the Bible? It goes back to Genesis 14. After Abraham has defeated the... Um, uh, the armies of the five kings that come in from the area of Babylon and they've swung through the whole Dead Sea area and destroyed all these towns, captured all this plunder, and they've headed to the north. And some of those he's captured have been Abraham's nephew and his wife, nephew Lot and his wife and his daughters. And so they're up towards the northern part of of Israel, which is near uh, what comes to be known as Dan, and so uh, Abraham takes his f- force, all of his servants, which are really function as a small army, and he goes up there and defeats them. And then on his way back, as he's recovered all of this plunder, all this booty that had been uh, taken by the armies from Babylon, he, he stops in Jerusalem and he is going to pay homage and give a tenth of the recovered booty to Melchizedek, the king priest of Salem. Now, that Gentile priesthood, king priest, was dying out. Interesting, I don't know if this is true or not, but the Jews believed that Melchizedek is Shem. And if you work the chronology, Shem would still be alive. Shem doesn't die till, until uh, he's one of the three sons of, of Noah. And he doesn't die until Abraham's about 160 years old. And so this is like a transition from the pre-Abrahamic era of Gentiles to Abraham. And these two meet. And so now David has recovered Salem. And as a king priest, he is functioning like a Melchizedekian king priest, which is foreshadowing Jesus, who clearly is said in the New Testament to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So all of this is filled with incredible prophetic symbolism related to the significance of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, and his role during the ascension 
as, as the priest. So this is what Psalm 110 verse 4 says, the Lord, meaning Adonai, uh, uh, well, I think this is actually uppercase. This is Yahweh. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Talking to the second person of the Trinity, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, I'm just going to skip over that for the sake of time. Now we get to Ephesians 4, 8, quotes from this, and it's quoted as, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. What does that mean, he gave captivity captive? So I did some more research on this this last week, and we have to ask who were the captives in Ephesians 4, but to answer it, we have to go back to Psalm 68 and what does this mean that he led uh, captivity uh, led captivity captive? Why would God be leading captives? The standard interpretation here is that these are the Canaanite kings that were conquered in the conquest. What's wrong with that interpretation? What was the basic command of the conquest? Kill every man, woman, and child. Would that include the kings? Yes, that would include the kings. There's no captives of Canaanites, or shouldn't be, to lead in a victorious procession. And I don't think that's who he's talking about here. Um, We have this identical phrase in two other passages. In Judges 5.12, which we just studied on on Tuesday night, uh, uh, there's the call... To, to Deborah and Barak to attack the Canaanite kings. Uh, awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake. Sing a song. Arise, Barak, and you take captive your captivity. Now, that's where there's a difference is in this phrase, you have um, the second person sing, masculine singular uh, attached to captivity. But it's other than that, it's the same verb followed by the same noun. Uh, Deuteronomy 21:10 uses the same phrase. It is the same noun followed, uh, same verb followed by the same noun. Again, it has a um, has a suffix on it indicating his captivity. But the basic idea here is uh, that of uh, taking uh, taking a group that is identified as having been captives and taken by um, Moses in this case and Barak in the case of Judges, Judges 5.12. So when we look at Psalm 68.18, it says, You, that is Yahweh, have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive. In essence, it's saying you have taken captive, captives. You have taken a group of captives captive for yourself. Well, who are these? Who are these captives that God has taken? I believe it's really referring to Israel. God, they were slaves in Egypt, and God rescued them. What is the word that is used for rescue? God redeemed them. What does that word redeem mean? It means to buy something, to purchase something. And it's used, as we'll see in a few minutes, in the New Testament to refer to the fact that we have been redeemed. We have been bought with a price. Okay? What were we before we were saved? We were slaves of sin. 
What was Israel before they were redeemed? They were slaves in Egypt. Uh, They were, in essence, captives or prisoners. They couldn't leave. Pharaoh wasn't going to let them leave. And so I believe that this is talking about these, these slaves, former slaves, are now God's captives, and he has led them to victory. That's the Old Testament pattern. Now, I don't always think that I'm going to come up with the right idea on some things because when I look through all of the commentaries and all the people I trust and they all have another idea, but they're all basically saying the same thing. And a lot of times I know these guys, many of them personally, and I know that they're probably sitting there going, I'm not sure who this is. Let me look at the commentary. So they, there's an echo chamber effect. So I called up, uh, I called up uh, Charlie because uh, Charlie's done a lot of work on this. And I said, what do you think about this? He said, I think that's exactly what's happening there, is that the Old Testament pattern is that God is taking the Jews to be as who were captives to Egypt to be his people, his captives. And the analogy then is that Jesus is taking those who were uh, slaves of sin and he is making them his captives. Christ is purchasing them. And this is exactly what we see. Christ is leading these former prisoners of sin, formerly unbelievers, but now we are his prisoners. In 1 Corinthians 6.20 and in 1 Corinthians 7.23, we see twice this analogy. You were bought with a price. You as a Christian, Christ paid for you. It's the purchase out of the slave market of sin. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And 1 Corinthians 7.23, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Whose slaves are we now as believers? We are slaves, bond slaves of Christ. This is what Paul is talking about in the whole background of Romans 6.16-18, 6, where he says, do you not know that to whom you present yourself. See, after you're saved, you're freed from the tyranny of the sin nature, but you still have that nasty capacity to sin. And there's nothing that an unbeliever can do that you can't do, okay? That's in contrast to Reformed theology, which somehow you really can't be as bad as you used to be, but that's not what Paul is saying. He says you have your choice. Now, before you before you were saved, all you could do is be controlled by the sin nature All you could do is morality or immorality, all from the sin nature, but now you have a choice. You've been set free to be a slave of Christ. And he says, don't you know that to whom you present yourselves, slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So you've got a choice. Are you going to obey the old sin nature, or are you going to obey uh, your new nature and walk with the Spirit? But God be thanked that through, that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free at the instant of salvation, were set free from the tyranny of sin, 
you became slaves of righteousness. That's our legal position. But a lot of times we want to run back and let our old master uh, dictate to us. So one last thing on Psalm 68, and I still haven't made it to Psalm 110, but we'll start there next time. This is a contrast between Psalm 68 and Ephesians 4, 7 to 10. In Psalm 68, Yahweh left his throne to lead Israel in the conquest and settlement from Sinai to the victorious ascent of the ark on Mount Zion, which is the site of his future final throne on the earth. In contrast, Paul modifies it as he quotes it. Remember, he's doing this under the power of the Spirit, so he's thoroughly authorized to change it. He said, it is Christ who is victoriously ascending, uh, not geographically to the Temple Mount, but above all the heavens from where he once, uh, was, where he once was, although uh, that was in pre-incarnate form according to John 6.62, John 16.28, and a number of other passages. In Psalm 68, Yahweh leads captives in a triumphant procession. These captives he's leading are, are, are the Israelites. They are now his. But in Ephesians 4, it's shifted, and it is Jesus leading this, these previous captives of sin to victory. And he has been declared uh, that he has authority over all of the principalities and powers. In Psalm 68, 7, uh, 7 to 18, Yahweh receives booty or he receives gifts. And I think this is talking about free will offerings from the Jews, from the Israelites who he's led in this procession. But in Ephesians, it is Jesus, instead of receiving gifts, gives gifts. That's the focal point of this passage in Ephesians 4, is the gifts that he gives to his church. And so that ties it back that the, 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 cap, the cap, captives that are taken are those who are, are us. We are the church age believers. So this takes us again to order of events. We have the ascension described in Psalm 68, 18 as a type of what is described in Ephesians 4, 7 to 8. Then Jesus will be told to sit at God's right hand in Psalm 110.1, as well as Revelation 3.21, and a number of times, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, and Psalm 110.1 is one of the most quoted verses from the Old Testament. Very important. And then uh, what will happen is he's told to take your seat and wait. And then in Psalm 2, he's going to be told what to do eventually, is to ask for his kingdom. But right now, he's not looking for the kingdom. There is no kingdom. And in, when we get to um, Daniel seven 14, we'll see that he asks for the kingdom, and he is given the kingdom. But that doesn't happen until after or at approximately the same time as the rapture of the church in the future. And then Messiah will return to the earth and defeat the kings of the earth, and he will establish his rule, and we will be ruling and reigning with him. So that sums it up for us as to how this all fits together, and the next two or three classes will pretty much see us wrap this up 
as these things tie together, we won't be going through all of Psalm 110 or all of Psalm 2 or all of Daniel 7. We're just going to hit the key verses. So that should tie together pretty quickly with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us so much, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And what we're studying in these, this passage is how you have blessed us as the bride of Christ, as the church, the universal church, your body. You have blessed us with these gifted leaders, these who were apostles and prophets in the early century. And then the gift of evangelists and pastor teachers in this generation uh, throughout the rest of the church age to train, to equip all of us so that we might serve you more effectively. Father, we pray that for those who are listening to this message, whether it's on the Internet or now or much later, that it would be clear to all that this is based upon what God has done for someone who has trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. All that is needed for salvation is to believe Jesus died for you. Just fill in the blank with your name. You believe Jesus died for Bill or Linda or Sue or whomever. Just put your name in there, and that's the basis for salvation. Not anything we've done doesn't have anything to do with our nationality or skin color or language or culture or anything. It just has to do with the fact that you paid the price for everyone at the cross. But to receive that, we have to trust in Christ, and then we have everlasting life. Father, we just thank you for this life that we have and the riches that we come to understand that we have in Christ as we study this passage. In Christ's name we pray, amen.